Let's open the Scriptures together to the book of Exodus in the first place, Exodus 33, and then to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2. So in the Pew Bible, Exodus 33, that's page 93 in the Pew Bible. These readings are taken in connection with our text in the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. A few Sundays ago, I preached to you on the opening verses of John 1. Now it's going to be the 14th verse where the Word becomes flesh and makes His dwelling among us. So we're going to read about the dwelling place of God as He established it in Israel and as it's recounted here in Exodus 33. And we'll see the comparison between those dwelling places of God. Chapter 33 of Exodus, verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You, yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways." that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. 
Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. We'll turn now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, in the Pew Bible, page 1090. 1090. And we read the account of the birth of the Messiah verses 1 through 7. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. In the Pew Bible, page 1127, 1127, we're going to focus on the verses 14 as well as 16, 17, and 18. Verse 15 is um, kind of a parenthetical comment, that's why we leave that one out this morning. But just to reestablish the context for all of us, I'd like to read the verses 1 through 5, and then we'll start at verse 14. So John 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. From His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So again, we'll be focusing on verses 14, 16, 17, and 18. Brothers and sisters, in our Lord Jesus Christ, a couple of Sundays ago on that, in that sermon on the opening verses, we saw how Christmas is God's new beginning in the Word. God made a new beginning in a world that's dying. These opening verses, one through five, they, they tell us in broad strokes about God's incredible new creation in sending His only begotten Son, the Word, Jesus Christ, into the darkness of our depravity. It reveals there that the Word has life in Himself and that this Word is the light of the world, the light of men. So this, this Word that gets sent is the perfect antidote, the only solution to a world that is dying and going downhill every day. And now in our text, verses 14 and following, the inspired apostle tells us more about the character of this new creation, tells us about its nature. When God is at work, you want to know what He's doing. You want to know how He's bringing help and more than, more than anything, we want to know how is this new beginning going to actually work? How is it going to succeed where the first beginning, creation, failed? Will Christmas really bring any lasting change? So with that question in mind, I bring you this word of the Lord, Christmas, God's full salvation in the Word. That's what Christmas is it's God's full salvation in the Word, with a capital W. The Word is the fullness of God with us. The Word is the fullness of grace and truth, and He is the fullness of glory. We hope to see those things this morning. So the opening words of our text, verse 14, are, I think, quite familiar to many of us. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So familiar they are, they, we, they might lose their sense of surprise and even shock, but to the original readers and, and just on its own, these words on their own in the context of John 1, they really should bring a shock to our heart. Because we learned in those opening verses that the Word, through whom all things were created and made, the Word was with God, says John, but the Word in fact, was God, the Word is God. 
And then all of a sudden, this, this being who is God Almighty is said to become flesh, human flesh. He takes up His home among human beings. It should astound us, beloved, that such a miracle could even take place, that one so high, Almighty God, should stoop so low to become one with us. And John is hinting at even more of, of the specialness of all this because he's chosen a very particular word to describe the words dwelling among us. It's a verb in verse 14 that comes from the noun tent or tabernacle. It's a verb that means to pitch your tent, to set up a tabernacle. So literally, you could read verse 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And when you hear that, that word tabernacle, that immediately takes you back, right, to, to the Old Testament setting, to the tabernacle that Moses set up in the desert. And that's what John is doing here. He's, he's got Mount Sinai on the brain. He's deliberately linking back to the Old Covenant language and the Old Covenant tabernacle under Moses. Verse 17, he brings it out in, a, in an overt way. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So, to really get the full value of our text, you have to understand that John is, is putting forward here a running comparison between the Old Covenant under Moses and the new covenant under Jesus. And the first thing that he compares are the two tabernacles. The tabernacle that Moses set up in the desert, and then that new tabernacle now that God raised up in Bethlehem, in the Word who became flesh in the birth of Jesus. Now, we read about that first tabernacle in Exodus 33, it's called there the Tent of Meeting. And maybe some of you were wondering about that. What is this thing called Tent of Meeting? Well, the Tent of Meeting, it was a, a special tent that existed before the tabernacle was constructed. It's kind of like a, a prototype of the tabernacle. And later on, the tabernacle itself is called the Tent of Meeting. But for all intents and purposes, the, the two have the same function. They're basically the same kind of thing. And it was called the Tent of Meeting. Moses gave it that name because in that tent, you could have a special meeting with a special somebody. Moses explains in Exodus 33, verse 7, everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the Tent of Meeting, which was outside the camp. So in this tent, you could, you could walk to this tent and you could have a meeting with the Lord. Think about that. And Moses would do this on a regular basis. He told us there in 33 verse 9, when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend so you, you could see God come down to the tent and stand at the entrance to the tent and the, and the Lord would speak with Moses and everybody worshipped, right? We read that. That would be an amazing thing for the Israelites. They would see the cloud of glory descend upon the tent and the Lord would be talking with Moses. So, God used this special tent to communicate with His people. 
In other words, he used the tent of meeting to bring his word to them. And now you can begin to see the deeper layer to John's description in our text. God used to speak his word in the tent of meeting. But now, John 1, the word, God's word, is sent in person. God's word comes to his people in the flesh. God's word has become one of his people, and he has pitched his tent, so to speak, right in the thick of them. Jesus is the tent of meeting, walking around. Now, to go back to that original tent of meeting, this was not an occasional meeting place. It represented something more. It was not just an occasional meeting place. In Exodus 25, when God gave instructions concerning the tabernacle, He said, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. I want to dwell in their midst. I don't want to visit. I'm not just coming now and again. I want to live. I want to make my home among my people. So the tabernacle was not just a place where the people brought their sacrifices. It wasn't just a tent where the priests went to work. It wasn't just a worship center for the Israelites. It was all those things. But at its heart, at its heart, brothers and sisters, it was the home of God on earth in the midst of His people. He came to dwell there. Do you see in that act of God the, the tremendous grace and mercy that He pours out? in that original tabernacle. You remember how God revealed Himself, right? On, on Mount Sinai, just before He gave the Ten Commandments, the people had to present themselves at the foot of Mount Sinai, and then God descended. This is Exodus 19. He came down in a great dark cloud with, with fire, flames of fire coming out of that cloud, and there was an earthquake on that mountain. And there was a trumpet sound like something out of this world. The mountain shook and God thundered out His holy law from that mountaintop. And He, he threatened to put to death any creature, be it an animal or a human, that even, even would so much as touch the base of the mountain. This is the God, this awesome, fearsome God who now says, I want to dwell in the midst of my people. By the way, my sinful people. Moses calls them a stiff-necked people. The God who hates sin comes down to live with sinners. That's the miracle of the tabernacle. Well, beloved, if that was perceived already in Moses' day as miraculous and grace-filled, the tabernacle. How much richer, how much fuller is the tabernacle that John is describing, the tabernacle that was constructed, you could say, on Christmas Day, so to speak. In this tabernacle, things are far richer. In the original desert tabernacle, God lived among His people, but in the Bethlehem tabernacle, God became one with His people. 
In the Sinai tabernacle, God clothed His glory in a brilliant cloud, right? That, that bright cloud. And He dwelt in a canvas tent. While in the Nazareth tabernacle, Jesus, God clothed His glory in human flesh, body and soul. He dwelt among us as a man. So if the eyes of the Israelites were, would grow large when they saw the cloud of glory descend upon the tent and God talking with Moses, our eyes should be popping out too, even more. Our hearts should be bursting out to see, with the eyes of faith, to see God descend to the earth through Mary, taking on our human nature so close that anybody could touch. You could touch Jesus, Son of God. You could look upon Him with the eye of the, of the flesh. God is here, people could say. God is right here. He's there in the person of Jesus, Son of Mary. That was the miracle of Christmas. He tabernacled among His people. So, I hope you see, brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ is the, the better tabernacle by far. He's the full reality of God with us, Emmanuel. The desert tabernacle was a sign. It was pointing forward to this, this better day. But Christmas brings us the fullness, brings us the reality. God's presence is really fully here in Jesus. How could God get any closer to us than by becoming one of us? He joined us in our flesh of weakness. The Son of God took on our flesh and overcame the limitations of our condition. He obeyed the will of His Father as a man, and He brought to His Father the sacrifice for our sins. So if we wonder if this new beginning that God is making in Jesus, in the Word, if we wonder if it's going to have any success, the answer is, it's absolutely going to have success. It has had success. Jesus did do His work. He did pay for all the sins of God's people. And in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we now have full access to God, unhindered. Indeed, it is so that in the Word made flesh in Jesus Christ, we have the fullness of grace and truth. John mentions that in verse 14, and then he circles back to it in verse 16, where he writes, and from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, when you read that, it seems like a, a stark contrast. Moses brought the law. Jesus brought grace. And a lot of people take it that way, and they, they draw a sharp dividing line between the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament was all law, you know, they say. It was all legalistic stuff. You had to earn your salvation by obeying the commandments, but thank God that He brought us a new covenant, a new testament, where now we are saved by grace alone. That's how some people understand those words. 
But is that really what John is saying? No doubt there's a comparison going on here between Moses and Jesus, but is it a comparison of polar opposites? Is it a comparison of good and evil? Notice the absence, absence of the word but. If John meant to contrast two contrary ways of obtaining salvation, you would expect him to use that very pointed word of contrast. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. And yet, there's no but. John just lays the two points beside each other to compare, but not to oppose. John says the law was given through Moses. He doesn't say the law originated in Moses. The law came from Moses. doesn't say that. It doesn't come out of Moses' heart. It came through Moses. Moses was the agent. Well, who did the giving then? And of course, we know from Exodus it was the Lord, Yahweh, who gave the law. So we have to be clear about this. If the law is somehow a bad thing, somehow an evil thing, what would that say about the lawgiver? How can something evil come from God? And then there's the other half of the comparison. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Well, again, who sent Jesus? It's the same God, of course. So, if you place the law in opposition to grace, then you are placing God in opposition to Himself, which is an impossibility. Both the law and grace, they are sourced in God. So, that means the law and grace cannot be enemies. They have to be allies, and they are. Both of these are gifts of God's love. That's actually what John is, is driving on here. He's not offering a comparison of opposites, but a distinction between something that was rich and now something that's even richer, something that was good and something that was better. He's distinguishing grace in its inception at its start and then grace in its fullness. We've already been kind of seeing that in the tabernacle itself, haven't we? The tabernacle was all part and parcel of the law that God sent through Moses. That whole system of worship under the old covenant, the tabernacle was at the heart of that. When God chose to come close to His people, to dwell in their midst, in the tent of meeting and the tabernacle, then God was being gracious to them. Nobody deserves, no human deserves to have the, the holy God live right in their midst. And when God revealed the Ten Commandments, was that, was that hardship? Was that slavery? Well, we saw this in a recent sermon. We saw that the law was a gift of God's grace to show His people how to enjoy their newfound freedom. It was not a new slavery. It was the guide for free living God's commandments were then and they remain today the rules of freedom, the guide to keep us from falling back in to the slave, enslaving patterns of sin. 
And if you think also of what was going on in the tabernacle, all those sacrifices, all the the various rituals, was this legalism? What the Jews were doing, what the Israelites were, were doing, was that just like any other religion? Was this a way to buy God's love and affection? Do all these things, God will be happy with you, God will give you some blessing and take you into some paradise after this life? Is that what they were doing? Far from it, brothers and sisters. This wasn't, this wasn't a, a man-made religion at all. It was a God-given gift. And what was God's gift? He said, people, my people, come to me. I want you to be with me in the tent of meeting, in the tabernacle. And you, a sinner, can come to me with an, an animal sacrifice. And here's what I'm going to do for you. You bring that animal sacrifice, and though you're a sinner, though you deserve to die... I'm not going to take your life. I'll take the animal's life. I will take the life of this lamb, which symbolizes the lamb that I will one day provide to take away all of your guilt forever and ever. I will take away your guilt. You see, that whole system of sacrifice and constant, was a constant display of God's grace. It was, it was mercy upon mercy every time you came into the tabernacle. You didn't have to earn God's favor. God was saying, I give you my favor. Free. I'm going to take out my wrath on the Lamb one day. The Lamb, Jesus Christ. So we need to be really, really clear, brothers and sisters. Moses and the Israelites, they all knew about grace. This was not a new concept. They knew about mercy. They knew about God's love. We read that too in Exodus 34. When Moses asked to see the glory of God, and God showed him part of His glory, put him in a cleft of a rock, and then God passed by. And and then we read something remarkable. The Lord spoke words as He passed by, and those words revealed the glory, the true glory of God. He said this, The Lord, so Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's who I am, says the Lord to Moses. Those words are chock full of grace, aren't they? Don't we all love to sing those words? For example, from Psalm 103, David incorporated them into his poetry in Psalm 103. And in a few moments, we'll sing the same concept from Psalm 116. Again, David, I love the Lord. His faithfulness I praise. He heard my cries, for He is always near me. In tender mercy, He bent down to hear me. The Israelites knew about mercy, grace, Love, compassion of the Lord. So these things are not opposites, commands and grace, law and love. They're on the same side because they come from the same God. In fact, John in our text is communicating that very subtly, verse 16. He says there, the Word is full of grace and truth. And then he adds, from His fullness we have all received... And there's a little comma, grace upon grace. 
grace after grace, blessing after blessing. So the idea there is there's an initial outpouring of blessing or grace, then there's a follow-up outpouring of grace. And John explains those two waves in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So the law, John is saying, was God's first wave of grace leading Israel to long for the Savior pictured in the sacrifices, because that word law encompasses all the sacrificial system. And then John is saying, Jesus Christ now, He is God's grace to the max, to the full, as all those symbols and shadows now give way to the reality of God with us, born in a manger in Bethlehem, He's the reality of the tabernacle. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Everything that the law was pointing to, Jesus is that, those things. That's what makes Christmas and the ministry of Jesus so, so stupendous, so wonderful. It's grace upon grace, grace following grace, one wave after the other. All through Jesus. Are your sins piled high? Is your guilt, does your guilt feel like a mountain? Look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will see him send you a wave of grace in His blood to wash your guilt away. He's paid for a sin. Are you struggling with temptation, with some kind of weakness of the flesh? Then trust Jesus, and He'll send the wave of His Spirit to flood those temptations out of your heart and make you stand firm. Are you at the end of your rope, maybe? without an ounce of energy to carry on the good fight of faith, there comes from, from Christ the strength to raise you up, to renew your youth like the eagles, as Isaiah writes, to put you back on top of the surf so you don't drown, rejuvenating your drive to keep walking with the Lord. Maybe you have sorrow today a sorrow so deep from something in your life, some pain. Nobody else can know that pain except the Lord. The Lord will send you a comfort, a wave of comfort that only He can send. He has life in Himself, remember? Whatever pain you're going through, He's been through it and is able to bring you comfort in your trouble. Maybe you've got darkness in your, your spirit, in your mind, and you're, and you're, you're sinking in that darkness. You can't see your hand in front of your face. Well, there comes a wave of light from the light of the world. That's what Jesus is. He's all these things. In every situation, in every corner of our bruised and battered lives, the Word of God, He speaks 
the Word of God, He acts. Jesus Christ pours out grace upon grace to heal our wounds, to bind up those things which hurt. That's why we're here celebrating His birth today. His birth was the beginning of this miracle of grace upon grace. He's brought to us fullness of salvation even the fullness of God's glory. For that's another comparison, and the final one this morning, comparison to, to Moses and the tabernacle that John writes about in verse 14. We have seen His glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's glory, that has to do with God's essence, with His being with His presence. We know from elsewhere in Scripture that God dwells in glory. The picture we have is that God dwells in unapproachable light. There's this brilliant luminance which surrounds Him. Nobody can see Him with the naked eye. Certainly no sinful being. Every Jew would have known from what happened on Mount Sinai from the cloud of glory that led them in the desert, and especially the cloud of glory that descended upon the tabernacle and filled it so brilliantly that for a time Moses couldn't even go in there. That happens a bit later in the book of Exodus. Well, John is now saying, look, that luminance, that, that brilliant glory of God, we've seen it. We've seen God's glory walking down the streets of Nazareth in Jesus. Well, that's a really remarkable thing to say because when you read the Gospel of John or even the other Gospels, you don't find Jesus wrapped in a dazzling cloud of glory, do you? Well, maybe on the Mount of Transfiguration, but generally speaking, He doesn't come with a brilliant light around Him. If anything, He's enveloped in a cloud of controversy, not glory. And Jesus in His ministry, He didn't often blow people away with His holy and majestic presence like God did on Mount Sinai, but more often, He caused the people He was interacting with to turn away because He called out for them to repent of their sin and put their faith in Him. Jesus wasn't waited on hand and foot by the priests in His own house, the temple, Rather, he was stalked day and night by the chief priests until those chief priests actually took money from his own house. Think about that. Those 30 pieces of silver they gave to Judas, that was money that was belonged to Jesus in his house, his father's house. And they took it and bribed Judas to betray Jesus. We don't find Jesus walking around like Moses you know, Moses, when he came down from the mountain, he had to put a veil over his face because the glory was shining too brightly from his face because he had been in the Lord's presence. Well, Jesus never had that. In fact, what we find is that Jesus ended up having shame, humiliation. He was hung on a cross, naked, surrounded for three hours by pitch blackness. We want to ask John, John, are you sure about that? Did you really see the glory of God in Jesus Christ because there's not a lot of brilliance shining from His life? <clears throat> did God, did Jesus really give us more 
than Moses did. But John doesn't back away from that assertion. He comes back to it in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Moses was gifted with a friendship with God. He could speak intimately with God as his friend, but he never saw God. Jesus, the Word, saw God. More than that, Moses was God's spokesman. Jesus is God. And the glory of God did shine through in Jesus. It shone through in exactly the last place you'd look for it. It shone through in His suffering in that humiliation, in the cross especially. It's there in the manger in Bethlehem, born in obscurity, in poverty. But he was born Emmanuel, God with us. That's where you see the Father's love for us, his children, by sending his Son to become one with us in human nature. In Jesus, the faithfulness of the Father becomes crystal clear to all who believe when Jesus allowed himself to be betrayed by Judas, when he was wrongly judged by Pilate, mistreated by soldiers, crucified on a cross, and three days later raised from the dead, in those things the unbelieving eye sees no glory, but the eye of faith sees all the glory of the Lord. Why? Because in those things, more clearly than anywhere else, the believer sees the holiness of God, the justice of God, the mercy of God, and the goodness of the Lord. You see and we see the compassion of God poured out on sinners, the zeal of God to save sinners, the power of God to redeem sinners, the steadfastness of God to bring this about. And above all, in Jesus, in His suffering and death, we see the sacrificial love of God on display. When you see Jesus with faith, then you truly do look upon the Father in His glory and majesty. You see it with clarity and fullness that far surpasses the brilliant cloud of glory that came down on the tent of meeting. So brothers and sisters, there's, there's, a, there's a richness here, a fullness like the Old Testament never knew. And so that question that we asked at the beginning, is this new beginning in the Word, is it going to work? Is it going to overpower our weaknesses and all the, the, the enemies that are around? Answer, it already has worked. Look at us gathered here today, a bunch of Gentiles in Canada. We're just part of a worldwide gathering of Gentiles the church has been gathering since Jesus came. His Spirit and Word have gone forth and they have, it has been making converts out of the nations ever since. The Word of God is changing the world. It starts with us, the church, and it cannot fail because the fullness of God is behind it. It's coming closer to completion every passing day. So celebrate this Christmas day. Yes. Rejoice this Christmas day in the Word who became flesh. Celebrate the fullness of Emmanuel, God, with us. Celebrate the fullness of grace and truth. 
and the fullness of glory which Jesus brings to sinners like us. See him with the eye of faith today. And then prepare yourselves to see him with the eye of the flesh in that day not too long from now when he will return on the cloud of glory. Amen.